Within the depths of the strip mall of the dam lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient bat-winged doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and disillusion. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, the brethren of the Lens's poem, do convene to judge this offering of cinema worthy of our esteem, or to be cast down as one as hokum. Let us all fezzes in judgment. Fezzes on, everybody. Donning the fezzes. Welcome, brethren and sistren, to this conclave of the Cinemania Society. Please be seated. And welcome to our listeners, to whom I will now issue this warning. We, the disciples of the Cinemania Society, have studied the mysteries of the motion picture. We meditate upon the silver screen for many years. Therefore, we have become inured to the films we scrutinize, which may contain hazards unsuitable to the young and sensitive ears. And such, we advise anyone listening to do so with discretion. Guard your ears carefully, lest you develop a severe and irreversible case of Cinemania. Present at our conclave tonight are myself, Brother Zachariah, guardian of the door. Brother Andy, master illuminator. Hello. Brother Andre, voice from the outer world. I was, uh... Dignity, Brother Andre, dignity. <laughs> what? <laughs> Brother Ethan, keeper of the lens. I see you. Brother Bill, master of reboots. Just a moment. We're rebooting. <laughs> Brother Daniel, possessor of the word, is absent, having been taken by severe levels of cinemania. He was last seen trying to join Intersect with an amorphous sex blob of a typewriter after being exposed to the cinemania-inducing film Naked Lunch. Shame, shame what happened to him. But it had to be done. Peace. Indeed, Brother Daniel has been deeply overtaken by Cinemania. This is why this group exists. Even our minds, which have been trained over years of exposure to films that cause Cinemania, can still be overwhelmed. I do recommend anyone who see that terrifying film of David Cronenberg's do guard themselves carefully and watch it in very small increments, perhaps no longer than 90 seconds at a sitting. <laughs> we had to seal him away in concrete! <laughs> Dangerous levels of Cinemania, brothers. I am Brother Zachariah, guardian of the door. I will be serving as the point of fix of presentment for tonight's subject of scrutiny, director Tetsuro Takauchi's 2000 release, Wild Zero. How did I come to this film, you may ask? As I walked down the dusty halls of our secret sanctum, I heard a growl like from a jet engine. And from the stockpiles of abandoned films, a vision of flames and zombies intertwined with UFOs descended into my mind like a nightmarish fever. As the vision cleared, I found a copy of Wild Zero in my hand. I knew then that for better or worse, a die was cast, and this was our next film. Perhaps this may be an even greater source of cinemania than Naked Lunch. We shall see. Brother Andre will act as master castigator for this enclave. 
Brother Andre, present the charges. All right, let me see. Hold on. <laughs> Brothers, we have charges of gratuitous use of because aliens, gratuitous use of flamethrowers on areas that should not contain said flamethrowers, being the live action Metalocalypse movie we never got, use of speed ups reminiscent of Nickelodeon ads circa early 2000s. Suspicion of just being one long music video. Suspicion of being derived from a high school punk's what if anecdotes. Encouraging the impressionable to solve their problems with golden balls and Mexican standoffs. Promoting sartorial felonies in both destruction and presentation. And finally, implication that rock and roll solves social crises. I would say perhaps one or the other, Brother Andre. Rock or perhaps roll, but not both. Both are just too powerful. Indeed, Brother I think you could solve Andre. a couple of crises with roll. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> Dinner rolls. Thank you, Brother Andre. I open up the floor for additional charges. Well, it left me half deaf. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, could you say that again, please, Brother Andy? I couldn't hear you. <laughs> well... They're, they're just they're just tuning up their instruments. Let them get through a single sound check. Come on. I mean, you may have um, you may have noticed I'm attending this conclave with uh, a massive Victorian ear trumpet coming out of the side of my head. But this Again. film is why. What? What? <laughs> the, Somebody get him a trumpet. Guitar Wolf is the creators of what they refer to as jet metal. Jet Metal is not um, a reference to Joan Jett, who they, in fact, do love, but because the lead guitarist, Guitar Wolf, loved the sound of a jet engine in the background, and wanted that's what he wanted his sound to, to emulate. So there is never just any clear sound. There is always a growling whining in the background. Making jet punk, whatever you want to call this, a thing, that's a charge I will definitely level on them. I will add to this list of charges, complete lack of comprehensibility. It took me two full watch-throughs to be able to make any sort of sense out of the story. <laughs> that, that, is, that is a legitimate charge. Yeah, and watchers shouldn't come to this film with any expectation that they're getting any kind of a narrative. Bill, you got a charge? <laughs> I have a charge of flagrant misuse of hair care products for the uh, Rockabilly guys. Oh. The lack of hair combing I found disturbing. Drinking and driving. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's probably one we should address, huh? Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> when your motorcycle has a cozy for a bottle of Jack Daniels right there in the windshield, yeah, I, I, I'm just saying it's probably one of the reasons they shot in Thailand. I think it's safe to say they all tied one on, Brother Zach. And speaking of tying one on, in the spirit of rock and roll, here's a list of products you need to buy in and sell out. May we all never sell out, Brother Zach.
Welcome back, fellow disciples, to our conclave on the Japanese rock and roll zombie alien invasion epic known as Wild Zero. General impressions of the film, brethren. Well, uh, noise, noise and, and, and sound and light coming into my brain and a vice-like grip tightening around my skull and squeezing and squeezing and the crackling of my skull bones echoing throughout my brain. And then just as I'm about to black out, I wake up and we're only halfway through the damn film. <laughs> oh, that isn't a good time to you? That, that sounds like many a good night of mine. <laughs> this was a difficult watch, let's just say. I I honestly, I, I really do love this movie. I think it's very good, goofy fun, but definitely guilty of Cinemania. One of the things I love about this movie is that there is a drinking game and you drink every time fire shoots out of something. Somebody says rock and roll. Somebody combs their hair. Somebody Ooh. drinks. <laughs> something explodes or a zombie's head pops. Nice. Now I have tried this and I am glad that I was just doing it with a sip at a time instead of trying shots because if you try it with shots, you're going to die. There is this thing where punk and or heavy metal bands in films keep referring to what they do as rock and roll. Is that something that actually happens in real life? Because that clearly isn't rock and roll. It's a different genre. This, this movie, I actually see a lot of parallels with uh, Rock and Roll High School from the 80s, uh, just with, you know, more zombies. The Ramones, obviously an influence for uh, Guitar Wolf, even saying that giving themselves the names of Guitar Wolf, Bass Wolf, and uh, Drum Wolf is a uh, homage to them. We should also point out that Guitar Wolf is the name of the band and also the name of the lead in the band. He's called Mr. Guitar Wolf, Mr. <laughs> G Wolf, if you will. Yeah. So yeah. when we say Guitar Wolf, we may well be referring to the man or the band or both. And not, there's no real way that that's going to be made clear. Not, not to be, not confusing at all. No, no. <laughs> This film hits you like the business end of a Louisville slugger, and it's only 20, 30 minutes in. I, I think uh, Brother Andy put it best, stating it may not be good, it may not be uh, very watchable, but is it punk? It's memorable. <laughs> well, punk as a genre itself, if I'm not mistaken, is just supposed mm. to be a bit incomprehensible. It's not supposed to be something that's only reserved for people with you know, talent. <laughs> Skill, even. Definite punk mood here. There's a, a lot of moments where people are doing nothing except setting a mood by doing pretty punky things for no reason, except that we can see how punk they are. There's definitely a deep obsession with being honest. I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for. Earnestness? Yes. Yeah. Definitely not a film for the soccer mom. <laughs> no. no 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 this is this is a movie you watch when you're just absolutely blasted out of your mind and you just want something to focus on while you're trying to understand the new reality you, you have just put yourself into yeah there's no subtext here it's all text and the text has been scrawled in crayon on the wall by a drunkard who's urinated all over himself but it's good. It's good. 
but he did it with conviction, Brother Andy. <laughs> Someone should have been convicted for this. Yes. <laughs> well, as you were saying, Brother Andy, it's a simple story. Can you sum it up uh, the way you do? It is a simple story. It's a very simple narrative. It's uh, I don't know what hack they got to re-spin this old yarn, but it's a simple case of boy meets band, band meets man, man fights band, man swears revenge while boy meets girl, girl turns out to be boy, boy can't handle that, existential crisis during zombie attack until band tells boy no boundaries in rock and roll, and boy makes up with boy, then man turns up with a grand slam plan and gun in hand, so band takes a stand before a Aliens land, then everybody explodes. So, do you understand? <laughs> Absolutely, one hundred percent. Are you tale is tale as old as time? It really is. I mean, it's so derivative. I've heard it a thousand times before. Classic. You actually made more sense of that film in 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 that uh, in that summary than than I did in two watches. I, I watched it twice and it made no fucking sense to me. <laughs> and you just summed it up right there. That's it. You you hit the nail on the head, brother Andy. It's all right there on the screen. What can I say? Is this is this a generational thing? Because I watched it once and I got it. I don't. Maybe that's something to say about me. Maybe I gotta. Eh. Look! Look at this! Look at Mr. Gen Z showing off his <laughs> fast brain and his appreciation for things that are difficult that we, the olds, can't possibly manage to comprehend. Hey, hey, hey! I'm supposed to have at least some damage from alcohol because I drank it before 25. So you know, you know what? We turned your world into a living nightmare, and this is why because of that <laughs> attitude. Thanks this for that. We turn you. For all we've done, this is how you repay us with Wild Zero. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What does Generation X have to say about this, oh, ye Gen Xers? Yes, yes. We tried to make the world a better place, but um, the generation before us did a good job of wrecking it with their land yachts and uh, episodes of Dallas. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they did indeed climb the ladder of social success and then pull it up after themselves, did they not? Yeah. JR should have been shot twice, one in the chest, one in the head. <laughs> Always got to double tap those fuckers. Always got to double tap. <laughs> double yes. Tap. Find one in every car, you'll see. <laughs> Everyone knows that it was actually Genie who brought JR back, so... Uh, I know you're not going to get that the same actor from I Dream of Genie and played JR. I forget the guy's name, but it, someone will laugh at that. <laughs> okay. That joke is so old, I'm going to blow some dust off it. <laughs> <laughs> going back to the power of rock and roll, I think in this context, rock and roll, punk, punk being a name that was put on to what was essentially just small artistic garage bands of the time and became its own genre of just, you know, trash rock. Rock and roll has always been the cry of the disenfranchised and those who just want to fuck shit up. Speaking of fucking shit up, at least 40% of our sponsors do not fuck shit up. That is the guarantee of our podcast. 40% guarantee is not considered a legally binding guarantee.
And we're back. How shall I describe Wild Zero? Wild Zero is a film that in a lot of ways defies your classic three-act narrative. At its core, it is the story of a young Japanese pompadoured, coiffed, leather jacket-clad rock and roller by the name of Ace, who in his quest to see a self-described jet-punk band, Guitar Wolf, winds up stumbling through encounters with mobsters in tight, tight shorts, knife-wielding slackers, zombies, aliens, Yakuza and tactical rompers, and of course, finding out that love has no borders, nationalities, or genders. But it is so much more. <laughs> this movie tangents into more side stories than an MMO has side quests. As it stubbornly introduces new characters without any explanation or context, instead of predictably forwarding the plot, leaving you with a disjointed story involving drugs, zombies, aliens, delinquents, perverts, and of course, the power of rock and roll. So instead of just trying to follow the story, the members of the Conclave have taken it upon themselves to summarize the various storylines from the various viewpoints of the characters in the film. Rashomon style. We're going to rush him on it. <laughs> Shut up. And for our first part of the film, I will be taking over and telling you the narrative tale of Guitar Wolf. Guitar Wolf? Tell us what happened to Guitar Wolf. Tell us uh, what they did. I do not believe wolves play guitar. Tell us of the truth that you've seen with thine eyes. This... A wolf shouldn't have a guitar, but try getting it away from him once he's got it. Oh, brethren. This is the story of the legendary creators of Jet Punk, Guitar Wolf, a band of leather-clad, sunglass-at-night-wearing, rockabilly Ramones-like rock-and-roll gods. The three members of this power trio are Guitar Wolf, Bass Wolf, and Drum Wolf. And this movie starts with them doing what they do best playing their angry music with fire literally spewing forth from the stage and microphone. Following the show, the band confront their manager, the captain, who has already been described as a sociopathic degenerate king in a world of sociopathic degenerates. Guitar Wolf seeing the captain abuse women and alluding to abuse that he used to lay on Guitar Wolf when they were younger. It leads to guns being pulled and a tense Mexican standoff. As they hold each other at gunpoint, a punk rock enthusiast ace overhears the captain proclaim that rock music is obsolete. Ace bursts into the room, allowing Guitar Wolf to shoot the captain's hand. Guitar Wolf makes Ace his blood brother and gives him a whistle to blow if he ever finds himself in danger. The next night, after another flamethrowing concert of epic proportion, Guitar Wolf the lead singer, not the band, hears the whistle that he gave his new blood brother Ace, and he heads to the location with no explanation, fueled by alcohol and the power of rock. Guitar Wolf is stopped on the road by Haneko and Toshi, who are allowed to ride with Bass Wolf and Drum Wolf. They go to a gas station where Hanako and Toshi last saw Ace and are soon joined by an arms dealer and a tactical romper named Yamazaki. Guitar Wolf dispatches the zombies surrounding Yamazaki using laser-like guitar picks. This group visits Yamazaki's weapons cache where Toshi is bitten by a zombie. 
Guitar Wolf tricks Yamazaki into thinking there are balls of gold hidden inside all of the zombies, tricking her into helping him find Ace. Heedless to the alien spaceships flying around the world, Guitar Wolf set out again to find Ace. Bass Wolf and Drum Wolf's cars surrounded by zombies. In a strange version of the joke, what does the drummer do when he locks his keys in the car? He spends an hour trying to wake up the bassist sleeping in the back seat. Leaving Guitar Wolf to continue on his motorcycle with Yamazaki in her tactical romper following behind in a military vehicle. Guitar Wolf shows up with tactical romper woman in tow to save Ace from a horde of zombies. Ace expresses regret for not having saved Tobio, the woman that he loves, receives a handgun from Yamazaki and leaves on a motorcycle. The captain who tracked down Guitar Wolf with the help of a zombified Toshi begins launching grenades at the building in which Guitar Wolf and Yamazaki are. Guitar Wolf jumps out of the building as the room he was in explodes and fused with the power of rock and roll. An epic battle between good and evil ensues. After a fight with Guitar Wolf, the captain begins shooting explosive pervert laser beams from his eyes until Bass Wolf and Drum Wolf arrive and kill the captain using a rocket launcher shooting him right through the stomach, sending him to the hell of perverts in short, short, shorts. The alien mothership passes above Guitar Wolf and it is the first time that they have ever seen or acknowledged these UFOs at all in the movie. So what do they do? Guitar Wolf climbs atop a building, unsheaths his guitar, his fretboard being the handle of a sword, and uses the blade to cut through the mothership. The mothership explodes and the zombies are all neutralized. After sunrise, Guitar Wolf gifts Ace a comb and the van rides off into the sunset. The end. This is really the story of three guys who simply do whatever the hell they want forever and have no real appreciation for the law or speed limits or what anybody else would really prefer they were doing. It's like a <laughs> it's like a Western. It's the, these it's like the, the staple cowboy, mysterious stranger kind of deal where they just ride around and be all badass. <laughs> so you're saying it's the libertarian wet dream? <laughs> <laughs> True, true. Uh, and, and it does have levels of uh, of uh, post-apocalyptic Mad Maxitude to it. Mm. You could certainly say me... that. Um, you, you could certainly say that Guitar Wolf is a cowboy and on a steel horse he rides. Mm. Nobody, nobody, tell Andre what the reference is. He's too young. You won't get it. Well, he is wanted by the captain, dead or alive. I, you know, it makes me wonder if if simply owning a guitar is uh, enough to give one the credibility it takes in order to behave this way. I mean, you could just say you're in a band. You don't actually have to perform anything. You can say you're in a band. I think that was actually law in the 1970s. Well, I own a ukulele, but I'm not an insufferable twee indie outfit. No, that's true. <laughs> but is it an electric ukulele, Brother Andy? Hmm. <laughs> I do find it's it's difficult to sense what the motivation for any of Guitar Wolf is. They just go from place to place doing gigs, and they seem to have no reason for anything that they do. They don't really care that aliens are invading or that zombies are there. These are just things that are getting in the way of them going to the next gig. That's all they really do. 
and if it wasn't for Ace blowing the whistle, they wouldn't have even gotten involved. They would have just trolled their merry way. True. Yeah, that'd be sent. That'd be selling uh, shitty mixtapes to zombies out the back of their next gig without a second thought. <laughs> if you can, if you can ask a zombie for directions, you can make a zombie listen to some awesome music. All right. <laughs> I think that's that, most that's... of Sony Music's marketing right there. <laughs> I, I believe the the question I have for our resident punk expert, brother Bill, is how many fractions of a fuck are expected by a punk to give on a general basis? Let's say about uh, 2.75. So two full fucks and, and uh, uh, 75 centifucks? Yes. Or, or 2.75 millifucks? Millifucks, yes. So, so only, only two thousandths of a fuck should be given, and uh, just slightly under three thousandths of a fuck should be given. That's on not a even basis. the tip! <laughs> well, if you're living the rock and roll dream, there's there's very little fucks to give. <laughs> that's true. And that's one thing you can certainly say about Guitar Wolf. They're, they're living some kind of a dream. Well, they, the, they, I, the self-destructive rock and roll lifestyle, I mean, it's leave a, leave a used up corpse by 30. <laughs> live, live like James Bond, go out like James Dean. It's... There you go. <laughs> Perhaps I should begin giving fewer fucks. I'm I'm into the centifuck range. Ooh. <laughs> oh boy! Well, That's live live in service to the establishment and die without establishing any long-lasting legacy beyond a few bright spots. That was uh, Sid Vicious right there in a nutshell. He did it his way. <laughs> now we move on to our next point of view in our Rashomon style. Brother Andre, please give us the story of Yamazaki, the tactical romper woman. This is the story of the weapons dealer Yamazaki. Another work day, another late client. Yamazaki waited patiently for what seemed like hours for the money to show up. After a few hours, eh, bullshit, time to give up and drive home. After an uneventful but annoying day, time to relax, right? Catch a hot shower and scrub off the sweat from waiting out in the sun all day, but... Hold on. Was that someone breaking in? Yamazaki stopped scrubbing herself down and pulled back the shower curtain. What now? She saw zombies, full stop, in her house. The worst part, they were tearing up all her damn clothes! In a fit of rage, frustration, and the kind of last-ditch energy you get at the end of the day, she grabbed the gun and solved the problem the best way she knew how. Blast her way out of there. She hastily grabbed whatever clothes she had left to wear to dress herself after quickly jumping out of the shower. The only thing that really worked, some romper she had saved for a special occasion. She carried her frustration all the way out to the Jeep, picking off zombies as she went. What a disaster of a day. She revved up the engine and gunned it towards her weapon stockpile to ensure the merchandise was at least somewhat intact. Unfortunately, this bad day just wouldn't let up. Zombies clung to the sides of the Jeep and driving as fast as possible and shooting off undead trying to make their way in through the windows quickly became a massive chore. After a while of making no progress repelling the zombies, she stopped the Jeep in a huff and put all her effort into using what few weapon merchandise pieces she had to clean up the car. Just as she began to get overwhelmed by the crowd, suddenly they all fell to the ground, felled by guitar picks? She looked up to see what looked like a punk rock band accompanied by two others. Groupies? The leader of the group introduced himself as Guitar Wolf. 
Begrudgingly and out of pity, she gave them a ride to the warehouse that contained her merchandise. She felt obligated, but nonetheless annoyed. When they arrived, of course, they immediately took to picking out the wares like they were free. One of the groupies grabbed a handgun, but Yamazaki quickly stepped in and put him down. Suddenly, someone familiar began knocking on the warehouse doors, the Yakuza client from earlier. They were finally here, but were they turned? One of the dumbass groupies unscrupulously opened the door to confirm, yup, they were a zombie now stumbling in. The Yakuza zombie bit one of the groupies before the undead's head was blown off by Guitar Wolf in the coolest way possible. Maybe these guys were worth a few bits of merchandise. While the remaining living groupie assisted her compatriot, Guitar Wolf reached inside the Yakuza corpse to retrieve... Holy shit, is that an orb of solid gold? Finally, this whole ordeal might be worth it after all. At this point, the bitten groupie had reanimated as a zombie. Only one course of action, throw him out with the other zombies. The other groupie put up a bit of a fight, but that didn't matter. Attachments in an apocalypse? Lame. Guitar Wolf saddled up with some weapons and headed out. They had a mission to find someone called Ace? Not that Yamazaki gave a shit, but she felt like they had proven themselves. As they left, the groupie stayed behind. Hold on a second. Why was she covering her arm? Oh, of course, the dumb bitch. She was hiding a zombie bite from her dumbass groupie boyfriend. Yamazaki berated her for being an absolute loser, and for some reason, the groupie started talking about true love? What the fuck? What part of true love meant screwing over other survivors just because you're dating someone? Anyway, Yamazaki shot her dead because fuck her. But holy shit, you know what? After knocking down the groupie, Yamazaki realized killing zombies is super bloody fun. She followed the Guitar Wolf guy to another warehouse area, following up as they tore through zombies to get to this Ace character. However, after rescuing Ace and encountering this strange captain character with really high shorts coming after Guitar Wolf and by extension everyone else, this captain figure stated that the gold, after all, wasn't real. And after feeling that she was double-crossed, Suddenly, the warehouse was torn apart by explosions as Guitar Wolf jumped down to save the day. Yamazaki sat back, just kind of thinking to herself, what the fuck? How, how, how did this all occur? How? Anyway, that's what I got. Bravo, brother Andre. Woo. Bravo. The first thing you have to know about Yamazaki is she enters the movie out of nowhere. We have no idea why she's there. The scene just cuts to her waiting by the side of the road yeah. for this deal to go down. And she never finds out why the deal doesn't happen. The, the buyers simply don't turn up. We know that they've been attacked by zombies by this point. But as far as she's concerned, this is just a bad day where randomly zombies appear. And so yeah. she hikes up her tactical romper suit and gets into action. Don't you just hate that just minor inconvenience of just zombies taking over the world? It's really just quite a bother. Well, in Japan, I think that's just Tuesday. <laughs> I will say that the film could just have been about tactical romper suit woman and nothing else. And it would have been awesome because for my money, she is one of the best parts of this whole thing. She's amazing. True. I, yeah, I, I will grant you that brother Andy. I mean, uh, it it there is something hypnotic about about the way that she acts terribly like i mean her acting her physical acting is terrible but but it she's still somehow incredibly compelling 
in you know the amount of contempt she is able to to exhibit with her with her facial expressions while also simultaneously wearing a long sleeved houndstooth print bikini with belt and fur trim and matching high heels oh yes i forgot about she's actually yeah she's got those pumps on that are also in a houndstooth pattern and not like like in general like i would not say she at all is my type but it's also one of those things where it's so compelling you can't stop from staring at her she is a beautiful woman yes (laughs) and she definitely knows it and not only does she know it she also wields it as much as the gun that she's pointing in people's faces she's a badass through and through oh man yeah Yeah, she she does not take one moment of shit from anyone uh, from beginning to end and she's brilliant and frankly she should get her own film series i want to know where she came from what her deal is i want to know what she did next that's where i think the film should have been what say you brother bill regarding uh yamazaki ah she gets the knowing nod from the it department (laughs) (laughs) she means business she is the cool car She is definitely the Black Widow of the uh, Guitar Wolf Avengers here. True. <laughs> she can do with a couple of square yards of hideously patterned lycra what it takes the entire Guitar Wolf band a few cows worth of leather to achieve. I will say for someone who is uh, represented as an arms dealer, she shows a shocking lack of either trigger discipline or muzzle awareness. There's a scene in which she scratches the side of her head with the barrel of her pistol. <laughs> Well, that's just punk rock. Yeah, it's punk rock. <laughs> Who needs gun safety? Yeah. Want a safety? Your safety is your finger. <laughs> True. And, uh, you know, honestly, you don't get into arms dealing because you're the most sanest, well-put-together individual who's making great life choices. Uh, I think she actually makes the only logical, reasonable choices throughout the whole thing. She has a plan for every situation. She has enough arms to carry that plan out. And she logically moves from A to B in a way that literally nobody else does. She doesn't get on the back of a motorcycle crossed with a flamethrower, knock back half a bottle of Jack and just ride into the night hoping for the best. No, she gets in a Hummer with a grenade launcher. That is that is a very good point. So she's kind of the, the anti-punk counterpoint. The sanity to the insanity that is Guitar Wolf. Speaking of sanity, products that will save your sanity are coming up next. And we have returned to our grand conclave on the film Wild Zero. Next, for in our next segment, Brother Ethan shall tell us the story of Toshi and Hanako. Thank you, Brother Zachariah. <clears throat> Toshi was exactly where he'd promised himself he'd never wind up again. Stuck in a car, arguing with Hanako, Masao behind the wheel, Toshi sighed inwardly. His resolutions to himself would be a hell of a lot easier to keep if he actually learned to drive. Masao and Hanako had been lovers before she and Toshi had met, but now they just hung out. All the damn time. Toshi was supposed to be her boyfriend, but he felt like the third wheel more often than not. He'd seen them get drunk and make out a couple of times, too, but when he'd confronted her about it, she promised Toshi that things were over between them, and making out was as far as things ever went. 
Toshi still harbored his suspicions. When Masao had shown up in this beater that afternoon, Toshi knew things were going to get bad. Masao's hair looked like he'd combed it with a light socket. That and the manic gleam in his eye told Toshi the man had gone off his medication. Again. Toshi had to put up an objection. Hanako didn't have Toshi's balls completely in her purse, after all. Masao glowered at them through the windscreen while Toshi muttered his litany of complaints. Masao was a reckless driver. He got lost. There was that time he set those cows on fire. But no, Hanako had steamrolled him. They could be the first ones to take pictures of the meteorite, sell them for a fistful of yen. Besides, how else were they going to get there? Honestly, what kind of man didn't know how to drive or get a job? At that, Toshi had clammed up. Reluctantly, he got into Masao's rattle trap, and off they went in pursuit of fallen stars. Now everything was going to shit, as expected. The car was too hot, too dusty, the stereo was too loud, and Toshi found he was still in the same goddamned argument with goddamned Hanako, the stubborn bitch. Really, it was just a continuation of the one that started before he got into the car, the one that started the morning before Masao even showed up, the one that stretched all the way back five years. It seemed like all they did was fight. God only knew why he loved her so hard. Masao had that crazy look in his eye again. It was the same look he'd had right before he'd committed beef arson. Toshi felt his stomach nod in dread. The set of Masao's jaw and the savagery with which he whipped off the highway into the Esso station spoke volumes about his intent. Toshi thought he might stave off whatever was simmering in Masao's mind if he got inside first. He did have to take a leak, after all. Stiff-legged, he and Hanako staggered into the station. Toshi's knot of dread cinched tighter as he heard the car door slam, heard Masao's footsteps as he raced up to push past them inside. Masao cackled. Here it comes, Toshi cringed. Masao whipped out a pair of butterfly knives, brandished them at the trio in the station, demanded money. The clerk stared dumbly. The girl and the pedal pushers fainted dead away, bounced off the couch and slithered to the floor. Toshi swore inwardly. Masao had really done it this time. How did he keep ending up in these goddamn situations? For what felt like the first time in his life, Toshi seized the initiative. He turned on his heel, left the station. He was even mildly surprised when Hanako actually followed him. Maybe she'd been as appalled by Masao's behavior as he had. Toshi climbed into the driver's seat and surveyed the controls. How hard could it be? Driving without a license was a lesser charge to armed robbery, and he didn't want to stick around to see anything play out. Toshi had just worked out how to start the goddamn thing when some asshole pulled up on a cheap motorbike. The asshole was dressed in biker leathers and jeans, wore a pompadour straight off an Elvis album, which the asshole even paused to perfect in the rearview mirror. The guy wasn't a gaijin, just a local who looked like he had an America fetish. The guy swaggered into the station. Boy, was he in for a surprise. Well, Masao was the asshole's problem to deal with now, and Toshi's no longer. Something must have happened, though. Seconds after the asshole had gone into the station, Masao ran back out, only now sporting a nosebleed. Breathless, Masao dropped into the passenger seat. On reflex, Toshi fired up the heat, put her into gear, and wobbled away like he'd been doing it all his life. Didn't even think about it. Hanako shot him a look of surprise for the second time in less than five minutes. A few kilometers down the highway, Toshi was basking in his newfound sense of self. Hanukkah was still arguing with him. The meteorite was the other way, but Toshi wasn't backing down. He was driving for once. Masao's mania had morphed into a shame spiral. Toshi almost felt pity for the man. Almost. Maybe that was why Hanukkah had kept the fool around, an overdeveloped sense of pity. Maybe that was why she had stayed with Toshi. No. Toshi pushed away the thought. The word accomplice bubbled up into his forebrain was also stifled. The sign ahead pointed the way to a rest stop. Hanako pleaded with Toshi to pull over, and this time, he indulged her. Things were getting weird. 
Masao's mood had sunk still further into suicidal despondency. If he actually did hurt himself, Toshi didn't want him to do it in the car next to him. The blood would ruin his favorite track jacket. Outside, the air was warm and honey-thick, but at least there was a breeze. Everyone's spirits were lifting. Hanako lay on the tailgate, fanning herself and sulking. Masao, ever the picture of sanity, piled up twigs for a campfire. God knew how else they would keep warm on a May afternoon in the tropics. Toshi had managed to get one of the butterfly knives from Masao and was now practicing how to flip it open. With a start, Hanako popped up, flung down her fan in disgust, and stomped off into the woods. As she did, she flung a barb about Toshi's being unemployed. Damn! She always knew how to hit him right where he lived. Toshi followed, determined to regain the upper hand. Toshi revived the eternal argument as they walked deeper into the woods, but when Hanako turned, Toshi could see something had changed in her eyes. She stopped, and he leaned in to kiss her. At first she rebuffed him, then turned and kissed him hungrily. It had to be on her terms, just like everything else. Just as things began to heat up, Toshi heard Masao scream in the distance. Hanako broke off. She ran back. Toshi cursed. It was always Masao. Toshi caught up with Hanako just as she broke from the tree line. Their makeshift campsite was abandoned, the car door standing open. As he drew closer, Toshi saw blood on the car door. A lot of blood. Fuck. Had Masao been that far gone? Hanako spotted a trail of blood leading back up the dirt road, which they followed and found Masao. At least, what was left of him. Masao was dead. Messily dead. His body was propped up against a cyclone fence, surrounded by a knot of people who were guzzling the bowels that hung from Masao's open abdomen like a salaryman's family at a hot pot. At least, they looked like people at first glance, but something was very wrong with them. Their flesh was the color of spoiled meat and they stank of rot. Toshi saw wriggling maggots in the eyes of several of them. Ghouls, zombies, the walking dead. The words popped unbidden into Toshi's mind and he found he was screaming. So was Hanako. Toshi fled into the woods and for the second time that day, Hanako followed him. Toshi and Hanako had been running for hours. It had gotten dark and they had lost their way, but not each other. Toshi cursed. If only they'd remembered to get into the car instead of take off on foot. His legs were burning, he had a stitch in his side, and he and Hanako were both filthy and covered in scratches. Suddenly, Toshi saw a light wax beyond the trees and he whooped in relief. Headlights! A road! They were saved! They both broke the tree line and came pelting out onto the blacktop to flag down the drivers. There were two vehicles in the caravan. The first was an asinine custom superbike with a cowling shaped like a wolf and a flaming exhaust pipe. The other was more Toshi's style, a classic Toyota Spider Coupe, bright red. The trio of men driving the vehicles were the same flavor of asshole that Toshi remembered having seen arrive at the petrol station earlier that day. Leathers, greasy hairdos, sunglasses, bad attitudes. Had that only been lunchtime? God, it felt like a decade. With Hanako in tow, Toshi ran up to the asshole on the bike and began jabbering at him, simultaneously trying to tell his story and blag a ride. The asshole gazed at him contemptuously through his wraparound shades, then grabbed Toshi by the collar, hoisting him a meter off the ground. Where's Ace? He sneered. Toshi gawped like a carp. Ace? Who the hell was Ace? He struggled, but the asshole's grip was iron. Then it dawned on Toshi. The first asshole he'd seen at the petrol station was part of their little gang of assholes. All right, sure, Toshi would take them all back to where he'd seen the guy so they could reunite their big family of assholes. He and Hanako were bunged into the backseat of the Toyota, a tiny enough space even if they hadn't had to share it with a drum kit and bass guitar. Again, Toshi found himself at the whim of a psychotic at the wheel.
The station was a mess. The lights were flickering, interior gutted. Toshi had decided the three assholes must be part of some band or other. He didn't know. He didn't like music. They sniffed around the place and turned up the same comb Toshi remembered having seen in the hands of the first asshole. Okay, ace, fine. Then the band started smacking Toshi around, and just as Hanako went into full mama bear mode, everyone froze as they heard the sound of groaning and shuffling. Toshi cringed. They were back. Toshi peeked out the window to see a horde of walking dead already filling in around the pumps. Just as the ghouls were turning to approach the station, a big green military vehicle came screaming in and mowed down several of them. A woman in a houndstooth bikini emerged with a pair of sleek automatics and began blowing the heads off the ghouls. Biker asshole himself produced a revolver and took some shots, but then they both ran dry and there were still a ridiculous number of zombies shambling around looking for someone to bite. And then Toshi saw something that left him gobsmacked. The biker produced a handful of glowing blue somethings and began flicking them out faster than Toshi could blink. Each object hit a ghoul in the head and it collapsed. In a twinkling, they were saved. It could only have been magic. Even the woman in the houndstooth bikini seemed impressed. When she asked the biker asshole what he was, Toshi was baffled to hear him say, Guitar Wolf. Well, that explained the custom mods on his superbike, if nothing else. The woman threw open the door to her tank, or whatever it was, and they all climbed in. Toshi marveled at the warehouse. The place was as big as a barn, with enough military hardware inside to destabilize a small nation. He'd only ever seen stuff like that on TV. Boy, he loved guns. Always had. Just being around a gun made him vibrate with power. Now he was in a building filled with them. He couldn't make up his mind which he'd pick up first. The woman, Yama something, Yamazaki, Yamaguchi, Toshi had forgotten it immediately after she'd said it. At any rate, she didn't take kindly to him handling the merchandise. Not like she didn't have plenty to share, and the band idiots were already pawing through her stash making selections. But Toshi couldn't? Well, fuck her. Toshi had had enough of women bossing him around. Today was different. He seized a nearby revolver and stuck it in Yama whatever's face, told her what- Before three words were out of his mouth, Toshi found himself on the concrete, weaponless, head ringing with impact. He stared down the barrel of Yamazaki's automatic and had the sudden crashing realization that a gun pointed in one's face wasn't a pleasant experience. Damn, he hadn't even seen her move. Hanako ran to his side, cursed out both of them, then helped Toshi up to his feet. Toshi sulked. It wasn't fair. Hell, Yamazaki was letting Guitar Wolf and his buddies arm up so they could go after their missing friend. They were even discussing some old movie about zombies. The fools. As if that could help. Everyone froze when a knock at the door came. Zombies couldn't knock, could they? Someone outside begged to be let in. Yamazaki had a terse exchange with whoever in the hell it was. It sounded like she knew him. She kept her automatic trained on the door and motioned for Toshi to open it. Why him? She urged him again. Fine. It's not like he had a choice. Ghouls outside, armed lunatics inside. This day had shaped up to be shit after all. He shuffled forward to slide open the door. It hadn't opened half a meter when a ghoul in the tatters of an expensive suit swarmed inside and took a bite out of Toshi's jugular along with a chunk of meat the size of his fist. The pain was enormous. It drove the breath out of him. His legs folded up and he collapsed to the floor. He heard gunshots, but they were meaningless against the agony. Hanako was suddenly there, cradling his head, staring into his eyes. It was then, as his life's blood was draining out of him onto the cold concrete, he realized she truly did love him. And he loved her more than anything. But then, why did he have this overpowering urge to bite her? Toshi faded into the abyss.
The thing that had been Toshi shuffled aimlessly. Now and again, motions near it drove a reflexive reaction, but the fragments of memory that still flashed in its synapses were only sparks, nothing that could be mistaken for human consciousness. Its existence was a bottomless well of pain and hunger, all focused around a single image, Hanako. A car pulled up, something warm and filling inside. The thing that had been Toshi stumbled over to it. Noises from within the car assailed its senses, mostly gibberish, but then a phrase, guys in leather. That triggered something in the tattered cobwebs within the Toshi thing's skull, and it gurgled, Guitar Wolf. It pointed in the direction it had come. Suddenly, the morsel of flesh in the car was beside the Toshi thing, was dragging it toward the car. The Toshi thing's jaws began to close around the morsel's fingers, but then it was shut into a lightless, rumbling box. The next sensations were when the morsel of flesh pulled the thing that had been Toshi back into the light and set it on its feet. The morsel tugged the Toshi thing this way and that, pushing and shoving, but the morsel was careful and did not provide another opportunity to bite. There were bright flashes, flames, impacts that liquefied portions of the Toshi thing's torso, but that was all meaningless. Those things were not Hanako. The morsel disappeared. There were more bright lights, more loud noises, and the Toshi thing was allowed to shamble off into the dark once more. Then, a shape. A shape that caused the brightest flashes yet within the cooling meat inside the Toshi Thing's skull. The Toshi Thing drifted toward the silhouette. Hanako. The silhouette turned to reveal a body that was as cold and lifeless as the Toshi Thing. The thing that had been Hanako responded. It staggered toward the Toshi Thing. They fell into each other's arms, and they began to devour each other, collapsed into the street. Impossible hunger finally sated. The embers of consciousness finally faded, and they knew nothing further. Bravo. Thank you, Brother Ethan. Well, mm. what was your takeaway from Toshi and Hanako's story? I'll say this, that you actually made me care about what I dismissed as a, pair, a bickering pair of obnoxious side characters that were put in there for just <laughs> zombie bait. <laughs> I think True. bickering and obnoxious says it all, really. I would have absolutely cut these two out. Masao was brilliant. <laughs> he's insane. He looks like he's completely lost his mind entirely and wants to rob a gas station by just staring and grunting a little. And it works for him. It's a good look. I liked him. But the <laughs> other two, I was. I don't always root for the zombies. I'm not always glad to see people devoured by the undead. But on this occasion, it came none too soon. And frankly, I wish both of them had been fed into the human meat grinder all the sooner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you 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 made them. Well, yeah, you made them almost likable, I think. <laughs> Which is funny, because to me, Toshi is like the totally unlikable character. Like, I picked yeah. him because he was meaningless and unlikable. And I tried to write him as unlikable as possible. Like, you know, I'm watching this guy, you know, and he's he's clearly just written to be this sort of gormless dipshit, you know, bumbling through life. You know, they they make comments in the dialogue about that he's unemployed. And, and uh, I thought, okay, well, how about I write this from the perspective of somebody who's totally oblivious and wrapped up in himself? You know, somebody who spends more time eating his own liver and envy, you know, because everybody else has a life, you know, and because this, because Brother Andy uh, uh, suggested we do this as a Rashomon style. And that was the thing that I think I found most compelling about that style of storytelling, which actually, I've, you know, as, as somebody who studied film, I, I have to admit, I have never actually seen Rashomon. I mean, 
What? That's yeah. Same. Yeah, I know. How can you get through film school <laughs> oh and take God. film history and work in the film industry for multiple decades and never have seen Rashomon? Well, I haven't. That's I know the, the way I heard it. It is an amazing film. Just I know. <laughs> But no, but the, the the reason why I knew what to do is because, you know, this will tell you how big of a dork I am. Um, my favorite of the mid-90s Star Wars novelizations, you know, all the different books that they did for the Expanded Universe was Tales from the Moss Eisley Cantina. I like that they, one too. They do the Rashomon style thing, but with all the different creatures in the cantina and like you have the common events that happen that everybody sees in the Star Wars movie, but then like you get all this backstory of you know the the jawa or whatever who happened to be in grabbing a beer at the time that you know luke came in and got roughed up by the the alien the, the, there's enough proof the fact that you're on a movie podcast is enough is enough proof that you're a geek <laughs> well my final uh, judgment the... on the final judgment on these guys is we've had the wild here are the zeros <laughs> yes <laughs> these are definitely the zeros in wild zero any other comments on toshi and hanako other than just being the the characters that you dislike and wait for them to get chomped on they had a happy ending which did involve them getting eaten by zombies so i think i think we got we got something good I think that does touch on the overall theme of love has no bounder, boundaries, nationalities, or genders, but I would add, or life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it says something about these, that they didn't find true love until they were both dead. Yeah. Isn't that, that wild? That's pretty rock and roll. <laughs> they they exist to prove that sometimes love is the worst thing that can happen to you and it absolutely is not the answer to your problems in any way they needed counseling immediately and probably a divorce well to me this the, their their relationship and the way that it was consummated at the end of the film really spoke to the nihilism that's at the heart of punk mm. uh, you can't find something good till you're dead or there they're the Sid and Nancy of the film, I guess. Except uh, instead of heroin, you got a zombie bites. <laughs> story of the evening brother andy is going to take and this i believe is the captain's story this is indeed the tale of the captain gather ye close my brethren draw your massive leather armchairs near and uh, fill your enormous elaborate pipes with more tobacco while i tell you about a man they call the captain the captain is someone who lives life exactly the way he pleases. The laws of God and man mean nothing to the captain. He has traveled deep into his own Joseph Conrad-style personal heart of darkness. And like Kurtz before him, he has kicked himself free of the world in order to live in accordance with his own needs and personal drives. There are a few things that drive the captain. One is the absolute need to have hair that looks like a lacquered helmet of a Lego man. He goes nowhere without perfect hair, shaped 
like a perfect sphere polished to a sheen, like the glowing black eye of a shark on the dive. Another thing the captain needs are booty shorts that lace up the side. Shorts that would make an exotic dancing man blush. The captain doesn't ever want you to wonder whether he's pleased to see you. He wants to send you an RSVP for the party in his pants before he even enters the room. No one else feels the need to do anything like this, and the captain feels nothing but contempt for lesser men who worship at the altar of trousers and wear their hair in a manner that's an unfeeling cosmos intended. When you meet the captain, you know damn well that he is the master of this ship, and it's no love boat. The captain is also a businessman. He runs an entertainment establishment, which apparently caters to that segment of the Japanese community that is absolutely committed to deafening noise punk electric violence. Why is the captain running a club? We don't know. We don't need to know. You don't question the captain. The answers will only be uncomfortably erotic and terrifying. It's worth mentioning that the captain dislikes noise punk electric violent bands. He has no time for them at all, which makes his choice of career even more enigmatic. What the captain really wants to do is sell people little golden balls of unclear purpose. That's what he's up to when we first see him, and this will never be explained. The balls are important, though. Understand this, my friends. The captain is very much invested in his balls and in sharing them with others. So, the captain was enjoying a quiet night, trying to get his latest basehead piece of strange to sample one of his balls. All she seems to want is cocaine, which is very unreasonable, when suddenly the noise punk electric violence band walk in looking like moody sunglasses at night dickheads. He's polite and calm. He tries to set a groovy mood by pausing to neck down an entire pint of milk while they watch in silence. For literally no reason at all, Guitar Wolf, for it is he, picks up a gun, calls the captain a pervert, and points it at him. There is no reason for this at all. They literally just walked in the room. The captain has a massive pistol of his own to hand, for he wasn't just pleased to see them. And they stare each other down for a while. This is all totally unreasonable, and the captain reminds Guitar Wolf that he made them big in the first place. Ace walks into the room and announces that rock and roll will never die, a statement he can't back up in any meaningful way as he is immediately punched out by a henchman. Guitar Wolf starts firing first, and some random bystander gets a head explosion for his trouble, and the captain loses some fingers. Now, let me just reiterate, this has all happened for no reason. The captain just wanted a quiet night to drink milk and push his golden balls onto the dissolute prostitutes, like you do. Well, after Guitar Wolf motorbike off into the night, it's clear what the captain has to do. He grabs his shotgun and prepares to embark on an entirely justified rampage of violence. By next morning, he's calmed down a bit. Although he has screwed a bright red Lego Man wig onto his skull, and that probably says a lot about his mental state. He spends a little time on his business, this time trying to persuade a lovely young girl to embark on a life of despicable vice. He's just about to drive her off to an undisclosed second location to, and I quote, teach her one more thing, when one of his thugs reports in, 
they've seen Guitar Wolf. Oh well, looks like the rampage is back on. The captain sets off, and it's worth pointing out that he has by now changed into an entirely different sea blue pair of tiny booty shorts that lace up the sides. This man has a brand to protect. We next see the captain speeding along a highway in his personal vehicle, a car which he has decided should be lined with hideous checkered velour and fur on the inside just to suit the Japanese climate. He's laughing to himself in insane glee, and it's nice to see he's enjoying his work. By sunset, he's still going, fire erupting from the tail of his car, and there's something on the radio about an invasion of USOs and zombies, but the captain could not give less of a shit when there's rampaging to be done. As it happens, the captain passes by a group of vaguely punkish-looking zombies as he rolls into town, and he asks one of them if they've seen Guitar Wolf. And the zombie seems to be trying to say something, and who knows, it's always good to have another friend, so the captain forcibly crams the zombie into the trunk of his car. You've got to be decisive when you're the captain, eyes on the prize. For no reason at all, the captain happens to pass by a large deserted building where it just so happens Guitar Wolf have holed up with that dumb ace kid from before. There are also zombies around, but this fact is so literally irrelevant to the captain's life that he barely notices. The right thing to do, the proper thing to do at this point, is start using a grenade launcher on the whole place, and the captain always does the right thing. When Guitar Wolf, by which I mean the lead singer of the band Guitar Wolf, steps out for a pistol duel, the captain is only too happy to oblige. Seriously, these punks have had it coming since uh, yesterday, actually. This very quickly degenerates into a, a clumsy fistfight, during which the captain reminds Guitar Wolf that they used to play together. Apparently they were partners at some point. Anyway, Guitar Wolf electrifies the captain using the power of rock and roll, which is a shame. That's not a metaphor. Apparently, this is just a thing that Guitar Wolf can do. The captain is not pleased with this, and you can tell because he finally takes his wig off. Dude looks like a middle-aged barista without it. Think Gunther from Friends with booty shorts. The captain uses his own electric madness pervert powers to shoot energy bolts out of his eyes, which means, you know, he means business. Oh yes, and uh, at this point UFOs appear above, for no reason. The captain is furious at this intrusion, and he uses his explosive eye beams to start shooting them down. Seriously, this guy is about to save the world single-handedly. When, in an absolute tragedy I'm sure we all saw coming, bass or drum wolf, one of the two of them, turns up and shoots him straight through the belly with a rocket launcher. That, unfortunately, is the sad end of the captain. A man who only wanted to live life by his own bizarre rules and get high with prostitutes, brutally attacked and then murdered by an itinerant band of noise punk electric violence assholes. And this brings us to the end of The Captain's Tale. Thank you very much, Brother Andy. Perhaps bringing some sense to the most relentlessly nonsensical character in the film. <laughs> I mean, from, from the captain's point of view, this is all about a band walking in the room, randomly starting a fight with him, and him going about the business of ending said fight. And that's all he's about. Everything else just seems to be happening around that from his point of view. It is... It is quite a commitment that the actor made to this character. And 
you just have to question the writing of how much was this on the script and how much of it was the actor just showing up and saying, I'll wear the booty shorts. I have to believe he turned up to the very first audition in those booty shorts and nobody questioned it at all. And he's wearing them to this day. He is so comfortable in them and so absolutely happy to just walk around prancing about in these tiny, tiny shorts. It's got to be a genuine lifestyle choice for him. Another interesting thing I like to point out is he has that wig on, which is his status all of his henchmen are completely bald even with the eyebrows shaved off and um i i don't know i guess it's like as you gain status and become the leader you get your hair back i don't know maybe his lieutenants get to have eyebrows <laughs> my role I, I feel if guitar wolf represent the rock and roll he's the sex and drugs and when you take it all together, you get the whole story. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that makes much more sense if you think of it in those terms. Um, the director of this movie did music videos and was friends with Guitar Wolf. The only other movies he has also made also have Guitar Wolf in it. So I believe that the captain in their own way represents the music industry. You know, the I managers. I all the, the slimy business people that you have to deal with, especially when you're uh, a smaller act. Uh, there's even illusions, like the whole thing of him being a pervert. It's it's so, so overwhelmingly put in there that just, these are the people that take advantage of the artist. This is the establishment. This is the man. These, this is the bad guys. You gotta wonder why he's even in the business at all. He doesn't really have any particular interest in music whatsoever. He's all about just drugs and prostitution, really. I have to applaud the director making some strong capital C creative choices. Um, you know, especially when you have so much of your budget going to to military hardware, bad zombie makeup, uh, shoddy VFX, you know, like really like when you have big, big piles of your budget going that way. Oh, and then apparently also traveling to and shooting in Thailand, which probably, although well cheaper than shooting in, you know, shooting in the, the archipelago of Japan itself, uh, was probably also not that much cheaper. Um, so, you know, taking, taking somebody like that and saying, okay, or, or, you know, taking this character with this, this strong concept, you know, all these that, that we've been talking about of like, you know, embodying the corruption of the music industry, embodying the corruption of rock and roll that that uh, that guitar uh, wolf as a band is trying to struggle against and being like, OK, how can we do this on the cheap? Uh, I'd say, you know, and in retrospect, it actually kind of makes a sense. And I applaud the director for doing that. Yeah. Uh, I well, castigate the director for doing that and absolutely <laughs> wish to take issue with his choices because he is trying to do a lot of things with this film and he could have done any one of those things very well with the actors and the budget and the location he had. But by choosing to do them all and doing each individual thing in a bizarre, nonsensical way that doesn't fit together in any way whatsoever, it's like trying to assemble a jigsaw out of scrabble pieces. It's not going to work. And frankly, he should have just focused on what it is he wanted to do instead of trying to do everything he could do.
Is it too rock and roll for you? Is it too much rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> but he did it with conviction, and that's punk. He did it with he did it with heart, even though he tried to do too many things. He did it with heart. When you're some punk, people should have less conviction. When you're <laughs> punk rock, you only need two Scrabble pieces, and that's F and U. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't matter if you're good. It doesn't matter if you know how to do what you're doing. It doesn't matter anything. It doesn't matter what budget you have. You just go out and you do it, and you do it as big and as loud and as noisy and as stupid as you can, and that is now a thing that exists in the world, and you can say that I did that. Even if it sucks, I still did it. I would <laughs> posit that it really does help if you're good. True, but eh. Out of all the venue owners... Bill, how does this venue owner of the captain sh uh, uh, hold up? As a, a person who's uh, been in many venues and uh, rubbed shoulders with uh, venue managers, he almost nails it. <laughs> <laughs> almost. Bootsy uh, shorts there's, and all. Yeah, there's uh, various degrees of s sticky creepy, but uh, yeah. He's uh he's an eleven on the um, Spinal Tap chart. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, again, I, they they could have made a film just about this guy, or just about yeah. Bumper Suit Woman, or just about Guitar Wolf, and it would have been one single sensible film. Yeah, and the, the hair color that he chose was a purple uh, wig bowl cut, which uh, purple being a royal color, and uh, and the bowl cut was uh, typical uh, of the, the medieval times because, you know, they didn't have hairstylists. Then I don't think the... this guy was really looking back to his medieval forebears in order to make some grand statements on feudalism through the <laughs> mode of his hair choices. I think this was an absolute nutcase who assembles his wardrobe in the dark backwards while drunk and just decided to live that way. Capitalist. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a feudalist, actually. Well, it did just occur to me that even his name, the captain, is a call to uh, Elvis Presley's manager, the colonel, if you remember. Yes. Yeah. And with all of the pompadours and rock and roll i have to think that was oh, somewhat yeah. intentional there too yeah i'm yeah, trying to add subtext there's no subtext here this is a, no this movie is much deeper this has many levels of cinemania that we're just touching upon brothers well, perhaps uh, we should warn our viewers that uh, multiple viewings are necessary to uh, to make any sense of it but to be cautious through each individual watching that one does not develop an irreversible case of cinemania mm. you might cross past the event horizon and get sucked all the way into the film <laughs> well, i know i'm never going to look at golden balls the same way again that reminds me of a, of a very important poem I once read on the inside of a bathroom stall somewhere. Those who write these words on walls roll their shit in golden balls. Those who read these words of wit eat those golden balls of shit. <laughs> oh, what the hell? <laughs> I'm amazed you people have ever mastered indoor plumbing at all. <laughs> Well, here in the colonies, we have mastered capitalism. So we will take an ad break and then come back for our judgment on Wild Zero.
Chopping the knives. <laughs> we return now for the end of our conclave in which we bring judgment against Wild Zero. All right. <laughs> I'm ready. Why wait? Judgment is necessary. What more could possibly be said? Only the best judgment. Listen, 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 listen. There's not enough flamethrowers. That's my only criticism. Well, one of several, but that's okay. Brethren, brethren, wait, what's that? Do you, do you hear that? Hey, brethren. Huh? We have an incoming transmission. Hey, brethren, can you hear me? Triangulating the signal. It appears that it's coming in from, from Interzone. Can you read Call me? Call the I'm not getting reception. Fetch yourself up to the top of the radio tower. Could, could I maybe not go this time? How about now? Nonsense! Get all the way yes, to the top no, of that tower. It's me? only 150 feet, for God's sake. Very well. Could I have the ladder? Let me crack the whip on Brother A Mathieu, ladder? Right? It's a ladder in and of itself. Get up but there and get to climbing. Can you hear me now? Don't leave me hanging like a cell phone here. I'm going to the truth. Just another five degrees. Put your back into it, man. We've almost got him, Brother Methuselah. Can you hear me now? Brother Daniel? Do you read me, Brother Daniel? Do you copy? Yes, yes. I, I feel like a cell phone advertisement. Can you hear me? I can Brother hear you. Daniel's alive? Apparently. <laughs> Brother Daniel, we th all thought you died from Cinemania. Last I heard, you were boarding a plane for Interzone to go live in sin with your typewriter. Oh, Naked Lunch wasn't that bad. Uh, but yes, I, I don't believe in long-term relationships, so uh, I've actually uh, taken up a flat um, with a cockroach uh, crossbreed with a typewriter. Um, we're very happy together. Kinky. Man's got to have a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I learned from, from Naked Lunch that if one wants to be a writer, one must have a cockroach typewriter. So, uh, uh, brother, brother Daniel, while, you are, uh, <clears throat> while you're in Interzone, were you able to secure the stuff I wanted? Oh, yes. Um, I have a whole suitcase full of the black. You got sufficient quantities. I should hope a suitcase will do for your purposes. Sharing has is caring. Yes, Brother Andre, sharing is caring. I assume it's undamaged. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's in good shape. Um, <laughs> but but uh, no no sharing with Doctor Benway. Um, I feel like uh, we're still working on your visa. We'll get you back here before too long. I assure you. I'll take a Mastercard. That's fine. <laughs> About a diner's club. I believe my diner's club is still open. <laughs> Leave no. him there and let him rot. Costco membership, it will also not do. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Andre. And, and have you uh, managed to avoid the Black Centipede Mafia? Uh, yes. Yes, I have. Though um, I have to say it required no small amount of, of stealth and cleverness on my part. And um, I had to pull on three different favors. So, um, uh, you know, uh, our, our naked, slimy Greedo friend, um, now I'm, I'm completely indebted to him. Wow. Oh, it's never good to be in with the mugwumps. No. Why not? No. I, I mean, it, it made for a lovely double date. 
That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that, I mean, that's how we that's how we watch Wild Zero, in fact. Yeah, how'd you, how'd you like it? I, I can't believe it. You actually survived to watch Wild Zero. You doubled down. <laughs> You're already suffering a nearly irreversible case of cinemania such that you went to go live in sin with a manic cockroach asshole talking typewriter hybrid and a mugwump. And you still watch Wild Zero. You still have the sanity intact enough to watch Wild Zero. Well, I actually, I, I managed to get them into a program off of Roach Powder. So, so yeah, so we're, we're in a much better place now. Nice. Um, so, so, yeah, uh, watch Wild Zero. And um, I feel like I came through that largely unscathed. Huh. So you didn't find it uh, a, a foul assault on the ears and the senses that left you absolutely brain-addled and unable to move. I don't know about foul. I think it's engaging. I'm, I'm with Brother Andre on this one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's not forget the spaceships. Oh, yeah. Th- those, those lovely dangling off a string rotoscoped spaceships. <laughs> oh, 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 all right, then, bro- Brother Daniel. T- tell us, tell us what, what engaged you. What was it about Wild Zero that engaged you so? Enlighten us. It felt like someone had taken all of the stereotypes of about three or four subgenres of sci-fi horror and just threw them down into into a, like a boggle, uh, yes. boggle. You know what I mean? Just <laughs> shook it up and then looked for a couple of a couple of words they could spell out. Perfect. And, and that was it. They were just like, okay, lasers from the eye beams and rock and roll and flamethrowers. And fl- yes, the flamethrowers, right? Um, romper suits and spaceships and zombies and um, rock and roll. Like it was Bubba Hotep meets Evil Dead meets um, half a dozen other things, which is really funny because each of those movies is a, it's a this meets a this meets a this. So you have this weird like metascape of movie riffs um, with absolutely no sense to them whatsoever. Perfect. Yes, it's a Disney World ride of awful genres all getting along in harmony. Yes, that is an excellent way to put it. I thought it was almost like um, Plan 9 from Outer Space crossed with Rock and Roll High School. There you go. That's another one. That's the thing. It has like an infinite number of these um, sort of X meets Y uh, pitch, pitch statements you could make about it. Could you imagine how what a pitch session must have been like for this movie? The best. Imagine the, the pitch session was just a, a drug-addled Japanese man screaming into the face of baffled producers and just demanding money. I, you know, it was probably that plus, like, their leading line wasn't, okay, so I have this movie. It's this meets this. It was just, here, snort this. Ah, but the, the big question is, is it punk? I mean, they, they talk about punk and what happens in punk and what is and isn't, but is this movie truly punk? Does it meet that standard for you? Do they talk about punk or do they talk about rock and roll? Well, I mean, they only ever refer to themselves as rock and rollers, but it's very clearly a punk aesthetic that the film is going for. But mm. do they achieve that? Is, is it punk? Yes. You know, it's, it's anti-establishment. Oh, yes. I don't, in fact, I would argue there's very little that you could say it's actually for it's anti just about everything right it's not just anti-establishment it's just unestablished like there's there's no foundation to this movie whatsoever for it to stand on it just kind of randomly goes from scene to scene with the general idea that well 
sooner or later being a zombie movie, we have to get to some, you know, finishing point, right? But then because it's an alien movie, we have to get to this other finishing point. So they put them both together at the end with laser beams from the eyes of different colors. Well, Brother Daniel, I believe you once told me you were originally from New Jersey. How does this stack up against your uh, hometown heroes uh, of uh, Larry Kaufman and Troma Films? Oh, oh, okay. So uh, that's an excellent question. Um, I, <laughs> I, I am I'm something of an academic specialist in trauma. Um, you, you have to be. Um, from a trauma physician, if you will. <laughs> trauma physicist, yeah. Um, <laughs> well put, Brother Andy. Um, yeah, so th first of all, there's not nearly enough nipple piercing for this to be, uh, to back up to a trauma film um in that regard um and i'd say it's less gory um i was expecting more gore coming into this movie there was some but not nearly as much as i was expecting i feel um, like probably if they could have got the money together for more gore it would have been in there or just more they, exploding heads why not they, they clearly had to make choices about shall we have another explosion or another head exploding or another alien spaceship and they made their choices something had to go right right yeah i mean and their budget it must have been really really low because i've seen trauma budgets and the amount of just red goo they can throw around on like 20 bucks is impressive but uh but yeah i'd say that um trauma films generally have a similar level of nonsensical transition from one scene to the next like okay how did mm -hmm. we get here um but even less consistency in character like they will just completely drop characters for no apparent reason you just never see them again this movie actually kind of tied the knots together reasonably well yeah i could see these characters having a life before this film and going on to do other adventures after it you know they weren't just ciphers that appeared in a scene and that was all they were oh i didn't even just mean that but like if this had been a trauma film like toshi toshi would have just vanished like we would, we have no idea what whether what happened to him. Just we wouldn't even even see him get left behind, and we don't know what happened to him. It's just like he's in the car one scene, and then the next scene he's not in the car, and we never know what happened to him. You're in danger of making me feel that there was perhaps a tiny bit of skill involved in making this Satan scrabble bag of bastardry that we had to sit through. <laughs> you know, here's the thing though: it almost feels like laziness because in trauma. It's so nonsensical that they really, they must have put some effort into it to be like, like somebody somewhere must have had an argument where it's like, but what happened to Toshi? We need to solve this. And somebody said, no, it doesn't matter. Suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas here they were like, okay, yeah, I guess we got to do something about that. So you, you're arguing that, that uh, this is the sort of um, Proustian endless sentence to Troma's Hemingway-ish cutting off all except the absolute bare minimum. Yeah, yeah. So all I'm saying is compared to Troma, I'd say this film is a slave to narrative standards. You know, I was thinking about it. <laughs> but that's only how, compared to Troma. How many of you, how many of you have had Japanese whiskey? Oh, I'm yeah. sure I have. Oh, oh, yeah. Japanese single malts are, um, I, 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 I have had Isla single malts and I like them. Like one of my favorites is Oban. You know, I also really like uh, Lagavulin. Um, and then I had somebody turn me on to a Japanese single malt and they're very similar, but there's a, there's a, 
there's a like an almost like a like a, a milled steel edge quality to it where it's it's almost like it's it's so precise almost in human machine like precision yeah no yes. exactly that's exactly yeah. it they have yeah. they have calculated exactly what it is that makes scotch taste like scotch and they've followed that to precision whereas scotsmen just like fucking reach down and pull it out of their kilt <laughs> <laughs> just reach down and whip it out Oh yeah, man! I yeah. won't drink. <laughs> oh, I got I something down here. <laughs> I won't drink a whiskey unless a peasant is drowned in it. <laughs> <laughs> when they talk about, oh, this tastes like peat bogs. That's exactly what they mean. Oh no! <laughs> you got, you got some. You got a couple of shit-faced Scotsmen who are hacking peat out of a bog. You're like, fuck it, I'll throw it in there. Uh, the Japanese are studying very carefully and writing down exactly yeah. how many pieces of peat they do, and right. they can taste that in the final scotch. And yeah. that, my opinion, in, in the in in the way that Troma, it might be the Isla single malt, and yep. this is the Japanese yeah. scotch whiskey version of a Troma film. Yeah, tastes like my ancestors. I can and kind of see the, hard. I can, <laughs> Sorry. I can kind of see where you're going with that incredibly extended and elaborate metaphor. <laughs> This is what I love about Brother Ethan. No, yeah, I think you're right that there is. Um, they, they've clearly got a lot of influences that they've been very careful to try and ape and copy, uh, even though many of those influences simply don't go together. But they they've put a lot of effort into where they have put effort. So I'll give them that. And at the same time, I've seen a bunch of really nutty um, indie Japanese films, and this has that same feel to it, which is distinctly Japanese. And not just in the, okay, we're going to precisely copy other things, but like it's got that Japanese manicness to it that you don't see hardly anywhere else. Yes. Yeah. Like the jet, that kind of mania that you see in the Ultraman movies from the 70s. Yeah. It's like all that has this real intensity to it that, that feels very specifically Japanese. Rather I would say that a lot of this is influenced by uh, Japanese theater and no performances where there's a very um, distinct style that actors have to move where they go from pose to pose to pose and there'll be a literature of poses. So if you mm. want to portray shock, there's a very specific pose that you move into in a juddering sort of way. They sort of shake into the pose so that you know it's coming and they describe the emotion by shifting into that pose with a very uh, arch robotic manner almost so that the audience is very much aware that this is what I am projecting now. And that comes across in, like you say, the, these sort of manic uh, martial arts type things where they're moving from position to position, to em from emotion to emotion. So I think, yeah, I think that this isn't just a, a general Japanese feel, but there's a very real cultural background to it in Japan. I see what you're saying. It makes a certain sense and it kind of maps well to that like rock and roll thing they're trying to do too, because it allows them to go straight into like, you know, the Elvis posing. Yeah. That yeah, so, uh, Guitar Wolf does a few times. Yes, yeah, so there's there's no transition. There's just calmness, then immediate rage, then immediately <laughs> the next the next thing. Which was my favorite thing about uh, Romper Suit Lady mm -hmm. is, is how quickly she could go to like, just flat out rage and violence. So I'll give it that it does in some way uh, evince the traditional Japanese cultural arts of the theatrical tradition of the sort of 14th to 16th century. Fine. If you have to drag that out of me, I'll give it that. 
That uh, is, I definitely think that is the most cultured input that we've had on this film to date. Huh. I think that's about as cultured as we're going to get on this film. So yeah, there's a there's an intense certainty of self that does shine through. And even though I can't say that it's a, a film that's going down in my all-time greats collection of things I'm glad I saw for any reason, yeah, you've you've persuaded me that there's a certain artistry there that uh, that at least has to be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. I would like to bring a few facts to the point of order that I found interesting. Um, one of the things is that this was a very low budget film done by a first time director who had only dabbled in music videos. They shot it in Thailand, mainly because all of the explosions and firearm permits you just can't get in Japan. Japan being notoriously unarmed and not even really having a true standing army. So going to Thailand, they got the use of the Thai military and um, most of the zombies in the film are actually members of the military or their family and friends. Uh, But that is why they were able to get away with on an indie budget all these huge explosions. And I have to say, I, you know, I applaud that kind of guerrilla filmmaking and think it is very, very punk rock. So all those, uh, all those aspiring filmmakers out there who want to make a zombie movie or something that requires a shit ton of extras and military hardware, um, maybe all we need to do is fly the, the core production team to Thailand and uh, shoot there. Thailand is known for being a place where you can get pretty much anything you want. I would ask why a zombie film? What exactly is the point of the zombies? We don't know where they came from or why. We don't know if they're going to go away or if they're just a permanent feature of the world now. There's no real engagement with the whole zombie idea in the film. They just happen to be there. It has something to do with the meteor, I believe. because. Because Toshi and um, Haniko, they were on their way to find a meteorite that had crashed nearby. And I think that the meteorite had something to do with the aliens, whether they shot the meteorite down there as some sort of a pre-staging uh, attack for an invasion, or they were just chasing the meteorite that they wanted. That I believe we will never know, but the yeah, there's no real reason for it. It's just rock and roll. <laughs> Zombies just happen. When I was commuting to work on the, on my way to Busan, they they just showed up when I was trying to read in my paper, and it was a rough day. You know, they, they just crash your your party, man. They just. <laughs> Just need to reboot after a day like that. Zombies are a well-known um, problem with the Korean rail system. <laughs> yes, yes. Brethren, brethren, I'm a modern guy. I listen to MP3s. I've got Netflix. I need a bit more than maybe it's something to do with a meteorite. I'm a sophisticated film goer. This is not good enough for me, and I, for one, am ready to leap to judgment on this whole mess. So sophisticated.
Well, I believe that the themes that we must touch upon in this film is one, the premise that rock and roll can destroy aliens and zombies. Thoughts, Andre? Oh, we, all know the, we all know the real way that you get rid of aliens and zombies. It's terrifying and secret and shall not be mentioned for reasons I'm sure I don't need to remind you of. Uh, playing the Vague. devil's advocate here, the rock and roll conquers all. Rock and roll conquers all. Which has led us to this sorry state we're in today. <laughs> true, true. I think rock... I don't know, but I think I think really we should just focus more on roll music. I mean, so many people focus on rock music that we just don't have enough roll out there. And I think maybe if we play a bit of roll music, we might drive them away. Like dinner rolls. <laughs> yes, long live roll. Rock... We- roll will never die. It's not rock and or roll. It's rock and roll. (laughs) All right. Two is the thought. Love has no borders, nationalities, or genders. But for a movie made in 2000, I think think that's actually a very good message. And I think is uh, ironically a very sweet underlying message considering the rest of the film. Thoughts? If you could pull any kind of decent message out of this film, that's probably a good one. It's a good takeaway. What do you want? (laughs) I think my take on Wild Zero may be a little different than a lot of other people's on this is that, uh, you know, I didn't like it the first time I watched it through. I mean, I liked the fact that it was trans friendly off the top, which, again, was sort of ahead of its time coming out as it did in like 99, 2000. Um, But like it didn't it didn't make a lot of sense to me. It was kind of like a, a it was like a. I don't know if I'd say tedious exactly, but I mean, it was, it was difficult to watch through and, and maintain my attention. And I'm not sure why, but it wasn't. But, um, but, um, and on the second watch through, as I was writing my story, it, it, it kind of started to grow on me. Like, uh, I don't know, uh, like a mold, like, like a, like a rash or a mold or something. Yeah. Yeah. I began to think about it from a a logistician's perspective. And as somebody who's done a lot of logistics on films, you know, that's, that's all, well, I wouldn't say all I did for Smosh. I mean, I've done a lot of creative stuff too, but the work that I did for Smosh um, mostly was logistics. And they actually pulled off a lot of things that are hard to do and they did them serviceably, if not well. I mean, it's damn hard to get a ton of people in the frame and all made up as zombies. I mean, even if they're not made up well as zombies, it's it's hard to mobilize a bunch of people, get them into costume, get them into makeup, and into frame. I mean, it is a it is a big effort. Well, um, it is a big effort. And imagine you're, you're a producer or you're, you're someone working logistics, and I come to you and I say, hey, I'm a new filmmaker. I've got this great idea. For this idea, I'm going to want Yakuza. I'm going to want explosions. There's going to be alien SFX. There's going to be zombies everywhere, lots of them, and multiple interweaving stories. If I came to you and said that, what would you be telling me? I'd be telling you that's at least an $11 million project because that that's, I have actually a pretty similar script of my own that I was shopping around for a while and everyone's like, yeah, you're not going to make this on a shoestring budget. But these guys did. And that's the thing that blows my mind. I mean, they pulled, they pulled it off. Like they, they got the zombies, they got the UFOs, they got a whole bunch of, uh, of, uh, uh, compositing done, you know, again, not great, but they did it with heart. 
You know, they did a bunch of things like like they had a lot of firearms and explosives and stunts and things that require a big logistical investment if you don't want to be completely reckless, which I'm sure these guys were. I'm sure they were. Oh, absolutely. They had to be. And I got to wonder, was there anything that they did compromise on? You know, were there any scenes where you have actual aliens walking around and they finally said, no, that's too much? Or did they literally get everything that they planned on and they just said doesn't matter what it takes we'll move the whole thing to thailand if we have to we're getting everything that we want to put into this this melting pot in there right which is exactly what they did according to to brother zach is they took it to thailand and they got exactly what they wanted i mean i guess that's what punk is about is telling I guess that's what punk is about, is doing what you want, no compromise, telling exactly the story that you want to tell and and hang anybody else who tells you no, um, even if you don't tell it well. You could argue that the whole punk scene was very much based on that ethos, because the first punk bands were guys with no musical experience, no real instruments, and no ability to play them, and they just insisted that they're going to be a band, and all of these bands started up, and fashion houses developed where they had no logistics, no shop fronts, no real ability to do anything, and yet they span their dream out into this whole movement that we're still talking about today. So there is something to be said for just insisting on your vision and seeing it through no matter what, regardless of your actual ability to do so. <laughs> that's, um, yes, that's, I, I think that is this movie in a nutshell, um, at least from my perspective. The, uh, it, it was upbeat. Yeah, I would, I'd be thinking upbeat thoughts as I watched The City Burn. As I walked away with my uh, with my guitar and my girl and partner in hand, and like you know, tomorrow's going to be okay. That's a, a what I got out of it at the at the end of the uh, the first watching. You might even say, uh, "Don't stop thinking about tomorrow." Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch! Oh, please. <laughs> that is better a... than before. Yeah, and that you should never stop because it'll soon be here. <laughs> it'll be here sooner than before let us yesterday's gone yeah. indeed andre you had something to say oh did i i don't know i mean uh, it's just it's just fun i mean i i really really like movies that just acknowledge there for fun just do do the thing do it hard and uh have a have a have a nice smoke after you know what i mean it's just a good time anyway also as a brief aside andre if you smoke afterward please use more lube <laughs> copy that <laughs> okay one thing we Dude, also have cool. not really touched on is the stone face brilliant acting of tobio in this whole thing how she is just this passive fainting angelic, angelic motion emotionless almost just <laughs> figure through, throughout this entire thing. I, yeah, there's the motif of her getting illuminated by angelic light. It's great. And, and yeah. The staggering level of indifference the actor, to everything happening The actor themselves, they rarely change their expression, whether it being kissed by Ace or chased down by zombies. I mean, there is a... Uh, Zen-like. Yes. <laughs> quality to it 
which is funny given that that she passes out as soon as Masao shows up and whips out the butterfly knives like she passes out and you'd think she'd be a very tender spirit but um you, no <laughs> she she hangs in there like she's she's in it to win it and then you know like uh, again just this this staggering level of zen indifference to fucking everything going on which is you know also kind of fascinating not sure if it's simply wooden acting or if it's it, this idea of you are the ultimate level of cool and now with that said dear brother and unless there are any other points to bring up I will now say it is time to render judgment. Is the movie Wild Zero guilty of cinemania? I don't think so. I think this at best rises to the level of trash midnight movie. Unthinkable. We've never had a vote against cinemania. That goes against <laughs> everything this society was built to do. <clears throat> Leave the bastard in interzone. Perhaps you have been uh, consuming entirely too much of the black meat, or perhaps entirely too much mugwumpism, or perhaps both. It's true. Love has softened my heart. He's fallen for his typewriter again. He's shagging the thing. Ooh, send video. On its way. Nice. Brother Andre. 100% guilty in the best way. That's one vote. Brother Ethan. Uh, yes, this film is is violently guilty of cinemania, and, and and especially in that it requires multiple watchings for me to comprehend. It is it it is guilty of cinemania. Brother Andy, this 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 film, if you can call it that, makes you actually believe that the power of love and rock and roll will conquer all, and that by following your dreams you can achieve anything. Hideously dangerous, definite cinemania. And Brother Bill. Guilty. I'm right. just trying to do the math for how much <laughs> my therapist is going to make. <laughs> right, so we have four votes for Cinemania and one for not. You know, at first I wasn't sure, but uh, hearing the arguments about how uh, rock and roll could um, crumble the cynical bases of our society, um, I, I think there's a good uh, point to be made there. My recommended approach to how to deal with this uh, dangerous uh, cinemania-inducing film is not to ban it or destroy it in some fashion, but to simply filter it into theaters uh, as like trashy midnight showings. And that way, the cinemania will be diffused. People, it won't, it won't affect their brains that way. They'll, they'll go in expecting that this is just a trash um, movie and not in fact mind warping uh you know torture from beyond and uh they'll take it as such and be shielded from from the worst influences brother randy i think you should check the stash he's given you if he's talking about cutting straight dope this way look we knew that brother daniel was a dangerous iconoclast when we allowed him into this society his ideas have always been quasi heretical and on the verge of being utterly void bearing I myself, although loving this film, have to say that there are ideas in particular that will haunt you, visions that will cause you to scream into your nightmares. And therefore I find it also guilty of cinemania. That being said, I say that we find all copies of this film and launch them meteor-like into space where they will hopefully land on another planet 
or my cause desk. a zombie a pl- <laughs> zombie apocalypse. <laughs> With that judgment, it is time to conclude our conclave. And as the credits fade to black, so too must this conclave. But always remember, always remember, fellows of the lens palm, as you gaze upon the lens, the lens gazes back. Conclave adjourned. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Zachariah Burks, Ethan Ireland, Andy Slack, Andre Luke Martinez, Daniel Scribner, and special guest, William McDonough. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland. Graphic design by Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Additional music courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania and Facebook at the Cinemania Society. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends, mention us on social media, and if you can, subscribe and leave a rating or review wherever you found us. Our episodes drop every other Wednesday. You can also find us on Coffee and throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free to make. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media short films, and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.